Let's have, oh, before you're seated, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, would you quiet our hearts now? Lord, may we come to your word with the kind of attitude that pleases you, an attitude that's humble, an attitude that's hungry. Lord, none of us are there yet. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't need what we're going to hear tonight, including me. Father, I do pray that you would help me once again to connect to this congregation. Lord, I need help. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, just like anybody else in this room. But would you use me? Lord, would you help this congregation, help them to connect to the speaker tonight as we look together into your living, infallible, eternal, preserved, alive word of God. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I would like to invite you tonight to go to probably what the very first book written in the New Testament was, and it's not Matthew. Matthew was written many years after Christ died on the cross. The very first book written in your New Testament is probably the book of James. So if you want to turn there here tonight, that's where we'll be the entire evening, James chapter 1. And while you're turning there, could I just give you a little background information so that this message will mean more to you? James is a brother, a half-brother, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was being raised in that home where James lived, James didn't believe in him. None of his brothers believed in him until after the cross. But James is now, as we read this letter, James is now the pastor or one of the pastors of a very large church, the very first Baptist church ever planted. It's the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. It is a very large church. And uh, as James is pastoring, an absolute jerk shows up. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name was Saul. Saul shows up and starts persecuting people like you. Well, like any godly man, any protective father would do, many of those families fled for their safety, and it's a good thing they did. And they went to, many of them went to Antioch of Syria. Some of them went to Alexandria in Egypt, but they fled. And no doubt, people, they were saying in their hearts, Lord, why? What are you doing? Christianity, people, was brand new. These are all new converts. None of them have been saved very long. And now they are being persecuted, they're being scattered, and there's a man out for their lives. And no doubt they were saying, just as you would, Lord, what are you doing? Why is this happening to us? What's going on? And so James, with a pastor's heart, sits down and he pens what you and I know to be the book of James. I like what one great godly man says. He says there are 65 books in the Bible. And of course, that's not true, is it, people? How many are there? He says there are 65 books in the Bible, and James is the summary. James is so very, very practical. And so when you start reading the book of James, immediately James addresses their concern. Why is this happening? And so would you read with me, please, if you would, please, at the start of James. Let's, let's read James chapter 1 and just the, uh, just the first, first couple verses here together, all right? You follow as I read. James chapter 1, he says, James, a servant, and that word servant really means slave, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, why does he call them 12 tribes? Because people up until this point, Everybody who's gotten saved is Jewish. They're all Jewish, and they're now scattered. And that's why he says that. So then you come to verse 2. 
He says, my brethren, count it all. I'm going to make a statement that's going to shock you. In fact, when I do this, I would like you as a congregation to go, I want you to gasp, okay? Because this statement is going to be so shocking. Could we practice? Let's practice. You ready? One, two, three. Very good. Very good. Now, let me make this statement. You get ready, okay? (laughs) God wants his people happy. Yes. Yes. He wants you happy. Now, when I use the term happy, Christians, please understand, I'm not talking about giddy. Oh, I just got a new dress. Oh, I just got a new car. Oh, I just got some money. Oh, I just got an inheritance. No, that's not the kind of happiness I'm talking about. I'm talking about a happiness that only Christians can enjoy. It's an inner peace, a inner joy, an inner contentment. No matter what's happening around me, I am happy. I am joyful. I know that God is in control. God wants you to be a happy dude. God wants you to be a happy dudette. God wants his people happy. Folks, in fact, if you're not happy, if you're not cheerful, there's something wrong with your transmission. Something not right. God wants his people happy. It's so depressing to see a Christian who won't smile. There's something wrong there. God wants his people happy. And folks, you need to understand that happiness never comes, not not real happiness. It never comes from happenings. It never comes from conditions. It's always an inner state. It's always an attitude. And so when you read that next word in verse 2, my brethren, count it all, what? Joy. That word joy means glad, happy, inner peace. I'm totally at peace with what God's doing. So God wants you happy. But, but look what he says in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers or many colored. That's what the word divers means, like a rainbow. Many colored temptations. Now, people, please know something right up front. That word temptations there really means testings, trials, hardships. The book of Job says that man is born unto sorrows like the sparks fly upward. There is nobody here that doesn't have trials, that doesn't have sorrows. Man is born into sorrows like the sparks fly upward. We all have issues. We all have trials. We all have hardships. And God wants you happy about them. God wants you glad about those hardships. Why in the world would God want that? Why should I be happy about a car accident, which is not really an accident, it's a purpose. So let's call it a car purpose. Why in the world would I be happy about that? Well, folks, the next verse tells you why. I love this phrase. I love this. Verse two, verse, first two words of verse number three. What are they? Congregation say it. You know what that means? It's kind of like James going, duh. Duh. Come on. Knowing this, duh. Knowing this, what am I supposed to know, James? Knowing this, that the trying or the testing of your faith worketh or energizes patience. Now, folks, God wants you full of patience, but we got to understand our terms here. What in the world is patience? The word patience is kind of a, it's kind of a, a word that doesn't mean what it used to mean. And the word patience here means that of endurance. They just keep going, those Christians. You just, no matter what happens, 
whether the whether uphill, downhill, good weather, bad weather, they just keep living for the Lord. And God, folks, God's purpose in your life, lady, God's purpose in your life, sir, nobody's excluded that's saved. God wants to build your endurance. He wants to build your endurance. In fact, one of the pictures that the Bible gives you of endurance is God says, I want you Christians to look at a marathoner and learn some lessons. God is no, folks, there's no question. God's a sports fan. And in his holy word, in his breath, he's always alluding to marathons and fights and races. And, and God wants all of you to be a marathoner spiritually. Now, now, let me tell you about a marathon. I'd been telling churches before I turned 60 that when I turned 60, I was going to run a marathon. A marathon is 26 miles, 385 yards long. I told churches that when I turned 60, it was my goal to run a marathon. So when I turned 59, I started training. One week to the day after I turned 60, I ran the Charleston Marathon. I chose Charleston because it's incredibly flat. And I ran that 26 miles, and I got to that 385 yards, and I finally crossed the finish line, and I said to my little wife who was waiting for me, Lori, never again. Just about killed me. But ladies and gentlemen, I share that with you because that is the picture that God wants you to know. If anybody ever tells you it's easy to be a Christian, punch him in the forehead and tell him, Pastor sent you. It is hard to be a Christian. It takes strength. It takes endurance. But let me tell you about a marathoner, people. If a marathoner were to walk into this congregation tonight, you would know it. A marathoner doesn't look any different than you do. The only difference between you and a marathoner, I'm assuming that none of you are marathoners, marathoners, the only difference between a marathoner and you is all on the inside. A marathoner has very strong cardiovascular systems. In fact, my father-in-law, who ran 47 marathons before he passed away, was told by a doctor one time that it's not unusual for a marathoner to have a heart that's twice as large as yours. A heart, people, is nothing but an intricate muscle. And the only way, the only way that that critical organ, probably one of the most important organs in your body, the only way your heart gets stronger is through cardiovascular exercise. And God said, so I want, I want you Christian to look at a marathon. Why? Because they've got inner strength. You wouldn't know it looking on the outside, but they've got inner strength. And folks, that's exactly what God wants to do to you. He wants to have you have inner strength spiritually. As I look at this congregation, I have no idea which one of you have great faith and which one of you don't. I have no idea. You can't tell by looking, but you sure can do, see it when they run the race. God wants all of you to be strong on the inside. Now, hear me carefully. There's only one way. There's only one way that God can make you stronger, and that's by you responding to hardships in a Bible way. When you have a hardship, God says, I want you to respond to that hardship because I have allowed it. I want you to respond to it in a Bible way, in an obedient way. And people, when you do that, it will always grow your faith. So friends, what God wants you to do is go, oh good, I got a hardship. Lord, help me to react to it in a godly way because I know it's going to grow me. And the bigger I am, the more useful I am to you. Could I get an amen? So, friends, God wants you to have hardships. Not because he hates you, not because he doesn't like you, because he loves you and he's trying to make you stronger. And again, I say, I repeat, the stronger you are, the more useful you are. 
But people, every hardship, every hardship in your life, and we've all got them. They're multivariate. They're all kinds. They can be health. They can be financial. They can be family, whatever. But every single hardship, and we've all got them, every one of them is nothing more, people, than a workout room. A workout room where you take your character, you take your soul into that hardship, and you take this Bible, and you apply it to your reaction, knowing that God's in control. Wow. Wow. Now, having said that tonight, folks, would you jump down to verse 13? Watch this. This is interesting. Watch this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, wait a minute, James. Wait a minute. James, you sound like you're contradicting yourself. You just got telling, done telling us, James, that I'm to count it all joy that God wants those hardships in my life. And now you're telling me, James, I can't blame God. What? Hey, James, time out. What's going on? Well, folks, let me help you tonight. This is so rich, and every Christian should know this. That's why I said knowing this, you should know this, that every hardship in your life, ladies, are you listening? Every hardship in your life is a two-sided coin. Every hardship, when you respond to it in a Bible way, will always grow your faith. However, Every hardship, if you let it, it's all you. Every hardship in your life has the potential to ring your doorbell to do wrong, to have the wrong reaction, to have the wrong activity, to have the wrong response. We're all very capable of that. Every hardship, people, and James wants you to know this, every hardship has the potential of ringing your doorbell to do wrong. You're the one who decides. And when it starts ringing your doorbell to do wrong, James is saying, don't you blame God. God had nothing but good in mind when he allowed that hardship in your life. He allowed it because he loves you. And he knows that's exactly what you need. But we let our flesh and we get our agenda get in the way and we get kind of sinful with our reaction. And immediately that trial has now become a temptation, a solicitation to do wrong. And when that happens, it's all you, buddy. It's all you, lady. Don't blame God. I heard about a man, people. This is a true story. I heard about a man down in Los Angeles who was a good businessman. He was a deacon, a good leader in his church. He loved the Lord. And because he loved the Lord and he wanted to live the word of God, he was a great employee. He didn't steal from the company. He didn't take breaks longer than he should. He was always on time. He was very dependable. Every Christian should be like that. Amen. You Christians ought to be great employees. And this man was. And because of that, people, he kept getting promoted. Now, that doesn't always work that way, but in this case, it did. He kept getting promoted. Till finally, one day, he showed up for work, and the owner of the company, the president of the company, came to him and said, would you please be our vice president? It will have a significant pay increase. Would you be willing to be our vice president? He said, yes, sir. Thank you so much. What an honor. His very first day on the job as the brand new vice president of that company, he was the last guy on the floor. And he made one last trip to his office to lock up, and there sitting on his desk was a massive pile of cold, hard cash, thousands of dollars. 
he thought, good grief, who left all this money on my desk? He thought, very wisely, I can't leave that here. I can't leave it in my desk. I can't leave it in a file cabinet because a cleaning crew will be here in a couple hours. We can't have this money around here. So he put it in his briefcase. He took it home. The next morning, he came back to the floor, made a beeline to the owner of the president's office, opened his briefcase, took out that envelope, put it down on the president's desk and said, Sir, somebody left all this cash on my desk last night. I have no idea. I just want you to know here it is. The president looked at him with a smile and said, It was me. It was a test. You pass. Folks, that's what every hardship in your life is intended to do. It's nothing but a test. I hope you pass. But you see what could have happened in that illustration? That man, and maybe this happened, I have no idea. But that man could have gone home, and in his mind, in his heart, he could have started thinking, hey, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I've got Christian school tuition. i got a mortgage. I'd like to buy a boat. I'd like to take a nice vacation. i got some car payments. I'd like to buy some nice shoes like an evangelist. I mean, he could be thinking like that. He could be thinking things like that. And, you, and you, folks, you hear what's happening? You hear what's happening? That test is all of a sudden starting to ring his doorbell to do wrong. That's what we're talking about. That's what James is talking about. And when people, and nobody here is excluded from this, when your doorbell starts getting rung, and when you give in to that doorbell, the process is always the same. And that process is very graphically described for you Christians in the verse 13, 14, and 15. Would you look at it with me, please? Let's go back to verse 13. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. When he has his doorbell rung, I'm, I'm being... I'm being solicited by God. And then, Bible, then the Bible goes on and says, For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You know what that means in the Greek? That phrase that we just read literally means this. God is inexperienced with evil. He has nothing to do. He has absolutely, there's nothing evil about God. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 11, Jeremiah says this about God. For God says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, Thoughts of peace and not of evil to bring you an expected end. What a fascinating verse, people. You know what that means? That verse is telling you, Christian, it's telling me, it's telling us believers that our God, it's impossible for him to have an evil thought towards you. Everything he thinks, I mean, every thought towards you, lady, every thought towards you, sir, is nothing but good. Nothing but good. And James is repeating that when he says there, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. He has never, ever, ever had an evil thought towards you. It's impossible. It's out of his character. It's impossible for him to have evil. Huh. Oh, wow. So then look at verse 14. We're in a heap of trouble. Watch this, verse 14. But every man is solicited. Every man has his doorbell rung. When he is drawn away of his own lust, appetite, desire, and enticed. In the Greek, it reads this way. Every man is drawn away and enticed. Every man is drawn away and enticed. Drawn away and enticed are right next to each other in the Greek. Now, folks, please understand this. This is so important because this verse is written to Christians. You've got the ability to have your doorbell rung, and your doorbell will always try to draw you away and entice you. 
drawn away and enticed. Would you say that out loud with me, please? Drawn away and enticed. Now you say it. One more time for Grandma. Now let me tell you what those terms mean. They are so vivid. The word drawn away, people. How many of you in this room have ever hunted? Would you raise your hand, please? Have you ever hunted deer? You have, okay. I shot my friend. You have, man? What did you, what did you shoot? You tried, you tried to. Well, good for you. I have nothing but respect for you. Good girl. Wow. You see, I don't get a girl to lay, sometimes I do. But, uh, there was another girl. Did, did you shoot something? What'd you get? What was his name? A, a bunny? You shot a bunny. Do you know, church, what you call a row of bunnies hopping backwards? A receding hairline. I'm sorry, that has nothing to do with my message tonight. Why did you distract me like that? Okay. Anyway, friends, the word drawn away. Let, let's get serious now. The, my fault. The word drawn away. The word drawn away is a hunting term. It's a hunting term. Let me describe what it means. I have a good friend who's a contractor up in the state of Maine. He builds beautiful houses. But he kind of supplements his income with a, with a hobby called trapping and hunting. He's quite the outdoorsman. In fact, I just saw pictures today on Facebook that he posted of some trout that he caught ice fishing. He's, a, he's quite the outdoorsman. And a couple of years ago, he sent me pictures of a, of a hunt that he did. What he did up in Maine, I don't know if you know this, but Maine is called the Black Bear State. In fact, the mascot for the University of Maine football team are the Black Bears. It's called the Black Bear State. There are lots of bears up there. And so up in the state of Maine, they have a bear hunting season. And this is legal in Maine. One week before season starts, you can bait. You can bait. Bear is very hard to hunt. They have very sensitive noses. They're very, very wary. It is a hard, hard game to hunt. But my friend's really good. And he went out into the woods where he knew he could see bear traffic, and, and he made a bait pile up against a tree. Old Dunkin' Donuts, pancakes, waffles, and smothered it with maple syrup. And then he put motion-sensitive cameras around that bait pile so he could check on his cell phone any action. Seven days before hunting season, this massive male black bear came out of the woods and did not get close to that bait pile. He could smell it. It was attractive to him, but it just didn't feel right. Didn't get close to it. Six days before hunting season, that same black bear came out of the woods got close to that bait pile, sniffed it, and then scampered back in the woods. It still didn't feel right. Five days before hunting season, that black bear came out of the trees, came up to that bait pile, and nibbled on it for just a few moments, and then scampered back in the woods. It just didn't feel right. Three days before hunting season, that black bear came out of the woods and nibbled on it for a little while, maybe like a 30 seconds to a minute, and then scampered back in the woods. On opening day of hunting season, that black bear came out of the woods, walked up to that pile, and started to gorge. And my friend was sitting right there. And with one arrow, one arrow said in his heart, you are a rug on my living room floor. 
and shot it dead with one arrow. I have seen that black bear. I've seen that rug. Now, folks, I don't know how that hits you, but to me that seems a little unfair. A little unfair. But what I want you to know tonight, Christians, is that God is telling you that bear is you. You live in a world. You've got an enemy called the devil. You've got a system that he energizes called the world. And you've got an enemy called your old nature, your flesh. And all those things melded together causes these bait piles that your enemy makes sure that's all around you. Wrong kinds of music, wrong kinds of internet, wrong kinds of thought life, wrong kinds of fashion. You name it, it's all out there. We are absolutely surrounded by bait piles. And some of you crybabies need to grow up and realize there's a reason it doesn't feel right. It's sinful. It's very sinful. But yet, but yet aren't we good at justifying? Oh, I'm a little different. Uh, that stuff won't affect me as much as it did my sister. That stuff won't affect me as much as it did my neighbors. And, and we're, we're all guilty, aren't we? And friends, what you need to do, what you need to remember is that when you allow sin in your life like that and you give in, you always pierce yourself with sorrows. Sin, when it is finished, as we'll see here in a little while in verse 15, sin, when it is finished, always brings death. I wish you people could travel with me and see some of the youth groups that sometimes I minister to where you've got young ladies, high school girls that are cynical. It's hard for them to even smile because they see themselves as a sex object because that's what the world says. Sin always kills. I see young men, maybe I'm looking at some, where you can't talk to a lady, you can't talk to a girl without your mind going in the wrong direction. You are killing yourself. It kills personality. It kills happiness. It kills joy. It kills peace. Sin always kills. But look what he said. He said, drawn away and enticed. And enticed. Let me tell you about the word enticed. Very graphic. How many of you in this room? Raise your hand if this is true. And I know I'm going to get a lot of hands on this. How many of you in this room have ever fished. Look at just about every, you mean people. Look at all those hands, you you meanies. Let me tell you what you turkeys do. You get some tasty little morsel and you hide inside that tasty little morsel a barbed hook. You then put it at the end of a line, you toss it in the water, and in your wicked heart you think, here, fishy, 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 here, I got for you here, here, here. And this innocent fish that has never, ever done anything to you comes along and sees your tasty morsel and says in his little fish heart, thank you, and chomp. And all of a sudden has 20 yards of dental floss hanging out of his mouth. And you proceed to reel him in to his death. We've all done it. We've all done it. And folks, I'm not preaching against fishing. It's fun. I love it. But you know what's so, so graphic? You're the fish. You're the fish. And your life is surrounded by hooks. And people, I am 67 years old. I thought those hooks by now would diminish. 
I thought those bait piles would get smaller. They don't. You never grow out of your flesh, people. It's always an enemy. It will always endeavor to ring your doorbell and solicit you to do evil because that's what your enemy wants to do. Because when you get into sin, when you bite that hook, when you do that bait pile, you always kill yourself. I was preaching. Well, let me start over. Way back when I was in fifth grade. No, sixth grade. I'll get it right. Way back when I was in sixth grade, I volunteered and got chosen in my elementary school, my public elementary school, to be on the school safety patrol. It was an office I dearly wanted for years, and you could only be on it when you were in sixth grade. These people were so cool. And I don't know why I got chosen, but I was one of the six in our school. Oh, what an ego trip. I would get to go to school early, and I would go to my office. We had our own little office, little closet there, and I would put on a helmet that had a Washington State badge on there that said Washington State School Safety Patrol. I had a sash. I had a yellow slicker. And I, the, the best part of it was I, I also had a flag. The aluminum pole was probably about that long. The flag itself was about this big. And on that flag it said, stop. And when I, a sixth grade man, would take that flag out into the busy road in front of our church, all you old people that drive cars had to obey the man. <laughs> what an ego trip. But people, the real reason, the real reason, although that was incredibly fun and that year went so fast, but the real reason I did it is because I knew that if you were on the school safety patrol, at the end of the year, your tax dollar hard at work, at the end of the year, we got to go on an all-expense-paid cruise. A cruise. The end of the year came. We got our cruise. We met there at the school at about 5 in the morning, all six of us. We got on a school van with a chaperone. We drove down to the piers of Seattle. We got on board the, the Princess Marguerite cruise ship. It was a small cruise ship, not one of the big ones like you see today, but nonetheless a cruise ship. We got on there and we set sail. We went up Puget Sound through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. This is all very famous saltwater ocean. Through the Strait of Juan de Fuca to one of the gorgeous, most gorgeous cities in the world. All kinds of celebrities have homes there. It's a city called Victoria on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Beautiful. I'd never been there. I'm on board that ship, and our ship pulled into harbor at Victoria. Off the bow, you could see a massive, huge hotel called the Empress Hotel. The Queen of England loves to stay there. We docked. We walked to the gangplank. Our chaperone was standing there, and she handed to each one of us a coupon book that got us into all kinds of sites all over Victoria free. And you're not going to believe this, people, but here's what she said. She said, children, did all of you wear your watches like you were asked? Yes, ma'am. She said, okay, I want all of you back here by 8 o'clock tonight. Bye-bye. She's turning six sixth graders loose on the city. I was down that gangplank so fast. Free! Yeah, here I come, Victoria! I was with a good friend of mine by the name of Dave, and Dave and I went all over Victoria getting to all these free sites, but there was one particular coupon that bothered us. It said free admission to the Royal Wax Museum. We looked at that coupon and we said, that's so girly. Who wants to look at candles? We had no idea what a wax museum was. 
But we're walking, we're walking down one of those streets, and folks, there it was. It was a huge building, larger than the one you're sitting in, massive building. Out in the front, they said, uh, Wax Museum, and, and out front they had a marquee that had pictures on it that showed what the, some of the sites that were inside, and, and just so I have everybody on the same page in this illustration, let me tell you what a wax museum is. What they do in a wax museum is they recreate famous moments in history, famous moments in movies, famous moments in politics of really lifelike wax figures. They're really lifelike. We looked at the pictures and we thought, Oh, that's cool. Let's check this out. We went in there. We put our coupon on the desk. We started walking down the, the, the hallway. And one of the first displays we came to was a display right here. And it was depicting Alice in Wonderland. Alice was this cute little blonde. She was sitting in a chair right in front of a vanity. She had a brush in her hair. She wasn't really all that far from us. And my friend, who was kind of a perv anyway, leaned over the rip rope fence, looked kind of closely at her and said, Mike, she's kind of cute. No sooner did he say that when she turned and looked at us with a smile. She was real. People, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, we screamed. Ah! Whoa! Oh, it scared us so bad. Oh, we were, and so every, every site we went to from that moment on, we kind of walked up to it slowly. Is it real? Is it real? Is it wax? Is it real? We came to a, we came to a fork in the hallway. You could go this way or you could go this way. And there was a sign right here that said, we would recommend that if you have children or you are of weak disposition, you go that way. The sights down this hallway may be disturbing for some. There was a sign over this hallway that said, chamber of horrors. I looked at Dave. Dave looked at me. I said, Dave, I'll go if you do. You know what he said? I'll go if you do. <laughs> School safety patrol, we're men. Let's do it. Into the chamber of horrors we went. Oh, people, I was not prepared for what I saw in that hallway. And this is why I'm telling you this. What they did in that hallway is they recreated famous tortures used throughout history, many of them on people like you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ without Mary, if you understand what I mean. There was one particular torture that I want to describe vividly that gave me nightmares for a long time. We stood there and just studied it. It was just so graphic. And what it was, was it was a dungeon. They had a black stone floor, a black stone wall, black stone ceiling, and out of the ceiling was a massive iron chain. The links were really that big. At the end of that chain, about waist high, was a massive fish hook, literally that big. And what they would do in history is they would take the victim and they would slam him down on that hook so that the hook would go in his back, around his backbone, and then protrude out of his abdomen, and they would let him hang. The sign said that if that victim was given water, they could live up to a week just dangling on that hook. They had it very graphically done. They had blood oozing from the wound. They had rats licking up the blood because that's really what would have happened in those dungeons. Folks, that bothered me for many, many days. I will never, ever forget that. I looked at it here recently. You can still see it on the Internet. It's still there. What a picture. But people, I share that with you tonight, and I hope you're bothered because what a picture of you. Every sin in your life and this is what James wants you to know. 
Every sin in your life, you name it, no matter what it is, young people, no matter what it is, adults, will always endeavor to hook you, to get you addicted. It might be something trite like taking the Lord's name in vain. It might be stealing. It might be losing your temper. It might be going to the wrong kinds of websites. My friends, we could be here all night naming the hooks. But every sin in your life, I know you think you're smooth and you can erase and delete the history files and you might be kind of sneaky with your cell phone, but you need to understand, Christian, every sin that you allow, every sin that you allow ring your doorbell will always endeavor to get you addicted and hooked. I was preaching this message a couple of years ago at the Wilds. It's a huge camp on the East Coast. Had probably about a 100 teenagers out here. And during the invitation, there were young people that came forward, but there was one particular young man I want to tell you about. I had gotten to be friends with him. This was a Thursday night, and I'd gotten to be friends with him, and I found out that he was from New York. He went to a public high school, really an outgoing guy, one of those rare teenagers that wasn't afraid to talk to adults. I'd gotten to be good friends with him. He was going to be the starting quarterback for his football team, the starting point guard for his basketball team, a great athlete, outgoing, handsome young man. Really liked him. But he came forward. He wanted to get things right, and he got on his knees, and finally his counselor went over, and they, and they left out, and they went out the side door to go somewhere and, and, and spend some time together. And the next morning, that counselor came to me and said, you know what he told me last night? He told me that he can count 25 hooks in his life, and he wants off. He wants off. People, that's one of the ways you know you're a Christian. It bugs you. It bothers you to think you might be hooked. Sin always brings death. I'll never forget, people, just drive this home tonight. I'll never forget reading the number one red newspaper in America at the time called USA Today. It's got four sections. They've got the news section. They've got the life section. They've got the sports section. They've got the business section. In bold headlines in this life section, I have it in my files, Here's what it said in bold black letters, huge letters across the top. It said, Playboy makes men fickle. The article went on and said that the Harvard Medical Association, HMA, did a long-term 10-year study on young men. And they found out that starting at the age of 12, Lucas, starting at the age of 12, men who get into pornography are already killing their marriage. Folks, just a simple illustration of what the world has discovered that James said over 2,000 years ago. Sin will always endeavor to hook you and will always endeavor to kill you. That's why verse number 15, would you look at it with me, please? There's a birth process that happens. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, always bringeth forth death. Friends, we never ever win against sin. It will always endeavor to kill you. It will always endeavor to get you hooked. I was a youth pastor in Massachusetts. There was a young man in that church who had graduated from Bob Jones University. He had gone to a Christian school. He had been the president of his youth group, went off to a Christian college, got a business degree, came back to that area. He was in my church. His name was Steve. And Steve was very friendly. He got a great job, great job. He had been a business major, got a wonderful high-paying job, bought himself a nice sports car, bought himself a membership at a health club. He would work out faithfully every day. He was ripped. 
But I noticed that Steve started missing church. And I would call him, hey, Steve, we missed you yesterday. You doing okay? Oh, Pastor Mike, yes, I'll be there next Sunday, I promise. And he, will, he, he always kept his word. But I noticed that Steve started missing more and more. Finally, it had been a couple months since we had seen Steve. And one day, the phone in my office rang. It was Steve. He was in tears. I thought that was so strange. He's kind of a tough guy. Kind of real solid, real manly. You'd like him. But he was in tears. He said, Pastor Mike, can I come in and talk to you? I said, sure, Steve, I'll wait. Steve came into my office and across my desk he sat there and he said this. He said, Pastor Mike, we don't know how it happened. I was drunk. We don't know, but I've got AIDS. I just had a doctor's appointment yesterday. I've got AIDS. Folks, I started meeting with Steve once a week. Steve got the hooks out of his life. He got the alcohol out. He got the immorality out, and he started living for the Lord Jesus Christ and started volunteering in the Iwana program, started living for the Lord. About seven years later, I played my trumpet for his funeral. I love to share that with people because, folks, you're no different. You're no different than Steve. You're human. You've got the flesh. And when you allow sin into your life, it will always kill. It'll kill your marriage. It'll kill your ability to be a good spouse. It'll kill your ability to be a good church member. It will kill your ability to be a good neighbor. It will kill your ability to be a good employee. Sin always kills. Always. I realize I might be looking at people that some of you have not talked about the Lord to somebody unsaved for years. You haven't given out a track, and I'll tell you why. You've been defeated. You've got hooks. And those hooks, sin will always weaken you. It always will rob you of your courage and your desires. May God have his will in your life, sir, man. Sin always kills. You need to understand that tonight. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes?